In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your mercy, your divine mercy. You've told us through St. Faustina, the secretary of your divine mercy, that mercy is your greatest attribute. And we ask you during this meditation to help us trust in your mercy more and more, to trust in your goodness, to know, to experience that you are with us and that you are for us, that you know us, that you understand us. And we pray in a particular way during this meditation that we would come to know ourselves, Lord, as well. We pray for the gift of self-knowledge. But only in the light of the knowledge of your love and mercy so that we do not despair or become despondent. And once again, we entrust this time of prayer to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and St. Joseph and crown Mary the Queen of our time together here as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As a backdrop, let's just look at John chapter 4. <clears throat> Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. So John chapter 4, we'll start on verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. <coughs> But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband. This you said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true 
when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such the Father seeks to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will show us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So then she runs off to the village and tells everybody about Jesus. And So we said in our last meditation that there's no such thing as man-made happiness. And this Samaritan woman was trying to find happiness on her own. And it wasn't working. And she tried again and again and again and again and again. <laughs> and it still wasn't working. And so she was desperate, in a sense. Jesus met her, you might say, in a place of desperation. And that's, that's a grace that we can all pray for as well. Not that we become despondent and despairing, but that we really long for and desire healing and an encounter with this Jesus, this Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. We have to pray in a little, you know, in a sense that we be desperate for the Lord. That we not be indifferent, that we not be sleepy. And Lent is just around the corner. And Lent is always a great time to wake up and smell the coffee that you're giving up for Lent. No. <laughs> but Lent and Advent are always great times in the, in the church's calendar to, to wake up and to arouse in ourselves, or to allow the Lord, rather, to arouse in us a greater longing for him. And that's one of the reasons why we fast from certain things, right? to create more time and space for God. It's not to offer things up to God. God. God doesn't need your chocolate. God doesn't need your coffee. What he needs is more time and more space to enter into your life. But when your hands, in a sense, are full, and when your heart is full of so many things, there's no room for God to enter in. That's why you fast, all right? God doesn't need your chocolate or anything like that, right? But you're giving him an opportunity to come in and to make himself present. But we have to make ourselves, in a sense, desperate for God. So, Lord, awaken in us this desperation for you this longing for you that this Samaritan woman was feeling because of her circumstances. She was very much aware of her desperate circumstances. And she was longing for God. She was thirsting for this living water, for this truth. And Jesus was ready to give it to her. She just had to repent Go call your husband. Uh, I don't have a husband. You're right. So it requires, as we said last meditation, this turning back to God. And what we're going to look at now, uh, with the help of this sheet here from your folders, so you can pull that out. I call this the anatomy of a wound. 
I know that's an inspiring title, right? The Anatomy of a Wound. Like I said, most people never begin this journey because it's too painful, it's uncomfortable. But as we can see from the Samaritan woman, Jesus wants to free us. He wants to give us living water. He wants to give us new life, abundant life, eternal life. He wants to heal our wounds. He wants to give us his peace, his happiness. So if we look at the top of our sheet, which, by the way, is meant to be a tree, the dotted line across the middle of the page represents the ground, ground level. And you can barely make out a trunk there and some branches and some leaves, and you can imagine some rotten fruit at the top of the page. So I think we typically get hung up, pun intended, we get hung up on the bad fruit in our lives. But these bad fruits, if you will, are just merely symptoms of deeply rooted wounds that constitute the heart of the matter. So I like to remind people that the problem is not the problem. Uh, obviously, these things can become problems, right? All of those things I listed or other things can become real problems that you have to address, obviously. But there's something driving that behavior. And I think oftentimes, even on retreats, we used to focus on changing behavior. But we all know that doesn't last very long. Right? Here we are, February 22nd. How many of you have you know, New Year's resolutions that you've already you know, given up on? Right? I'm not going to do this, or I'm going to do that. Well, here it is, February 22nd, and you're not doing that anymore. And, you know, whatever. It's because if we, if we only focus on changing behavior, we're not transforming our hearts and our minds and our wills by the grace of God. But when there's a deeper transformation that happens, when our identity is healed by the grace of God, and there's real transformation that happens by the grace of God, well, then our behavior is naturally or supernaturally going to change by the grace of God. As we come into agreement <laughs> with God and, and his image, with the image and likeness of God that we are created in it. And so, as I said, as that image of God gets healed, the image that we have of ourselves gets healed, and then we live freely. We live happily, joyfully. We, we rest well. We work well. We're in harmony with ourselves and with God and with other people. But if all we focus on is trying to change ourselves, what does that mean? That means that the image that we have of ourselves is negative. You see that? How self-defeating that is? I need to change myself. Why? Because I'm not good. I'm not happy with myself. So I have to change myself. But you're constantly unhappy with yourself. See how self-defeating that is? So I think that's the genius of what Bob Schutz has discovered. Bob Schutz and his book, Be Healed, and what we're talking about today really focuses on transformation. 
transformation of the heart. Healing the heart. When you hear healing, you can think transformation. Lasting change that is life-giving. Because I'm, I'm coming into agreement and I'm in harmony with the true image of God and therefore I'm in, in communion with God and I, and I have a better understanding of who I am in Christ. My identity as a daughter of God is coming alive. And I'm flourishing as a daughter of God as I come into greater knowledge and awareness of who I am as a daughter of God. And then what I do flows from that. You see that? Your action will flow from your identity. And then your actions will be fruitful in a wonderful way, in a beautiful way, in a true way, in a lasting way. And that's why we focused last night and this morning on identity. And, and we can never do that too much. But for the sake of you know, this weekend, we're going to move on. But we always got to come back to identity. You know, Lauren Daigle's song, You Say, right? Why did that climb to the top of the charts? Not just Christian charts, but why was it so popular even in you know, on popular radio stations? Because it's true. It's true. And, and people, as confused as they, still, as they may be, still recognize the truth when they hear it. And that's why it was so popular, because it's true. And so we have to applaud that. You know, we have to praise God for that. So I've got a chalkboard here, so the teacher in me is going to come out. So we have, if you will, a wound. And the wound then can be traced down to the very bottom of the page where it says there, trauma, abandonment, and or abuse. Type A or type B trauma. They recognize type A trauma as uh, neglect or absence of love versus type B, which is something that happened, abuse of some kind. And like Bob said, it doesn't have to be some you know, major kind of trauma, but even the little things that are sad or done to us or that we do, they leave their mark. They leave their mark, especially when we're younger. We don't have the capacity the capacity to make sense of what's happening. And so there's the event itself, the abuse or the neglect, and then what do we do? We start building the proverbial walls around that wound to protect ourselves. When I feel threatened, what do I do? I go into survival mode. I go into survival mode, and I, I even talk about that on the sheet there. Above ground, we find ourselves going into survival mode. 
but that's based on fear, as it says there, driven by avoidance and aimed at survival. And sometimes it's necessary to go into survival mode. We're wired to survive. It's the instinct that is most fundamental in all of us, right? To survive. So it's a good thing, but we don't want to stay there. We don't want to stay in survival mode all the time because it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And it's not a lot of fun, right? It's not very fruitful. But as we start building these walls around the wound, you've got the identity lies, which if you look at the bottom right-hand corner, we heard this morning on that podcast about the, the seven wounds, identity wounds. So there they are listed, abandonment, shame, fear, powerlessness, rejection, hopelessness, and confusion. And they have their corresponding lies, identity lies. So that's what this, that's, that's what starts to happen. You could call them toxic thoughts if you want. Toxic thoughts is another way of understanding these lies. And I've only put the, the briefest of descriptions there so that it would fit on the page. But we have another sheet uh, that I passed out there, the lies to renounce and evil spirits to renounce. So on that, that's the top 20 list. (laughs) And as you read through that list of lies to renounce, you can relate those to these other, to these wounds they fit in in different ways. But then Bob also talks about the seven deadly sins. So we go back up above ground because it's a survival technique. It's a way that we defend ourselves. It's a way that we cope. I say there, we set our hearts on using these coping strategies in order to numb the pain in our hearts and to avoid getting hurt again. So there are the seven deadly sins, pride, envy, anger, lust, gluttony, greed, and sloth. So here's where you're going to want to take some notes, because I didn't include it on this sheet. But I think Bob does a, a nice job of showing how each of these deadly sins holds up a particular behavior or object as an idol, as an idol, for example, um, anger holds up control as an idol. And there's a certain amount of fear as well that to some degree underlies all of these seven deadly sins. Pride holds up the self, the ego, and personal accomplishments. Lust holds up relationships, which I think is an interesting uh, way of conceiving of lust, where I idolize relationships. I think we often associate it with sexual 
behavior. But lust is not exclusively uh, referring to uh, sexual behavior. But you can use people in different ways, right? Lust, in a general sense, is where I use somebody. John Paul II even said that in teaching theology of the body. He said the opposite of love is not hate, it's lust. Some of you are shaking your heads. You've heard that before. The opposite of love is not hate, it's lust. So do I use people? Do I use my relationships? Do I idolize in a sense? And another way of looking at this or thinking about this is, I turn this way. So, you know, we said we need to repent. We need to turn back to God. Why? Because we've turned to these coping strategies. We've turned to these coping strategies as a way of defending ourselves, as a way of relying on ourselves. Gluttony holds up food and drink. Pleasure. You could say pleasure. So I, 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 don't, I, I turn to pleasure, I turn to wine and fine food as a way of numbing my pain or a, a way of giving myself a, a, a distraction or meaning and value. Greed, money, possessions, sloth, comfort, avoidance of pain. <laughs> Envy is like status, right? Fame. I, I elevate fame and status as an idol, and, and I, I strive for that. How many likes did I get today on that post I, I made? Oh, my gosh, I only got 50 likes. I'm, I'm just falling apart, you know. So inevitably, we, we, as Bob was saying this morning on the podcast, we'll fall into any number of these, several of them. But there's, we used to talk about a root sin when we put together our program of life in, in Regnum Christi. We would often try to identify a root sin. The funny thing about that is it really wasn't getting to the root of the problem. It was typically, okay, where do I sin the most? I don't know if I'm really more prideful or if I'm really more you know, sensual or what am I? Am I just vain? Well, you're all of those things. Don't worry. You know. <laughs> But the, I think the, the, you know, it's paradoxical, but whatever tends to manifest the most, it doesn't really matter. What matters is what's driving it, what's driving it. But at least you can see, okay, let's say I am more prideful, so I tend to idolize my accomplishments, my work. So I hold that up, and I find meaning and value and purpose in that, that which I idolize. And that's why we have to acknowledge that, we repent of that, and we turn back to the Lord. And we go back to our true identity. We go back to our true identity as daughters of God. You see that? And we get out of survival mode. So around this... Second layer, not only do you have the lies, but then you have uh, the, the capital sins there. So I'll just put CS for capital sins. But then we have this outer layer around all of that, 
And Bob Schutz talks about the inner vows that we make. Inner vows. They may not be very explicit. You may not even verbalize them. But they're there. If you grew up in a chaotic home, you know, if you have a mother wound or a father wound, you may have said to yourself, I never want to be like my mom, or I never want to be like my dad. Or maybe you grew up in a, in a situation that was particularly trying for one reason or another, and you said, well, and you felt like you couldn't depend on anybody or you couldn't ask anybody for help. So you said to yourself, I'm never going to ask anybody for help, or I can't trust anybody. Now, did you ever say that out loud? Probably not. But you thought it, and you made an agreement with it. In your own mind, in your own heart, you said to yourself, this is how it's going to be. This is how it has to be. And so I list a few examples. I will never be a burden. I will never cry again. I'm lovable because I'm always right. I will never trust my husband. I will never be like my mom. I'm lovable because I'm successful or because I keep a clean house, an organized house. So we come up with these different statements that we tend to put our value in, our worth, our status. But then what does that do? It creates what Paul, St. Paul calls a stronghold. So this whole package here is a stronghold that the enemy has in your heart. Because when you've made agreements with these lies and with these vows, it doesn't come from a place of humility and trust, does it? It comes from a place of woundedness, of pride, of anger, of fear, loneliness. Those wounds, shame. And that's why you can go to confession year after year after year confessing the same sins. Because you're focused on the behavior, right? You're focused on the bad fruit, but then you never get to the root of the problem. Now, Scott Hahn would say, well, at least you're not confessing all sorts of new sins every week. <laughs> so, I mean, there's something to be said for that, right? But I don't think we want to just settle for confessing the same sins over and over again. Where's the growth in that? Where's the freedom in that? Where's the happiness in that? Will we always have certain tendencies to certain sins? Perhaps. But there is healing. There is healing to be had. It's not rocket science. 
it can be complex because I think we are complex. We are mind, body, and spirit. And we've been hurt in different ways. And that always affects us. But it doesn't just affect the heart, it affects the spirit, the mind, and it also affects the body because there's an emotion attached to all of this stuff too. And so, yeah, it can be a painful process. But it's like when you go to the doctor, right? I mean, if, if, you, if you have a broken right arm, you're not going to say, oh, I really don't want to touch, I don't want him touching my right arm. Oh, it's my left arm. I broke my left arm, I think. You know? <laughs> of course, the x-rays will show otherwise, right? Uh, sir, I really think it's your right arm. No, 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 it's not my right arm. It's not that. It's not that. It's really over here. This is the problem over here. Well, I don't really think, no, 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 I, I, really. But we tell ourselves that, right? This really isn't my problem. It's this over here, you know? And, of course, then we blame, right? We could put blame all over that, right? It's my husband. It's my kid. It's my sister. It's my mom. It's my dad. And blaming people, blaming yourself. You might blame yourself, right? Blaming yourself and blaming other people helps in no way. Helps in no way whatsoever. However, we have to acknowledge it, that there was damage done. Here's the problem with blame, I think, is that you attach intention to blame. And Jesus didn't do that, right? What did he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When he was hanging on the cross, he said that. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's where we have to get if we're going to be healed. And it's not easy to get there, but it is possible. It is possible. Now, you might be thinking, well, they knew exactly what they were doing. Dang, you know? Yeah, on some level they knew, sure. Did the Romans know they were crucifying Jesus of Nazareth? Yeah, they knew that's exactly what they were doing, and they were experts at it. Did they know that he was the Son of God, the Savior of the world? Probably not, <laughs> right? So I think, you know, just think of this. Most of you are, 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 are moms, right? Did you ever wake up and say to yourself, I wonder how I can really screw up my kid's life today. Just how can I ruin my, my son's life? How can I ruin my daughter's life today? I really feel like ruining their life today. You never woke up saying that, right? Neither did your mom. You know, neither did your dad. Were they weak? Were they broken? Absolutely. Right? But again, when you were younger, you didn't know how to make sense of all of the chaos or the brokenness around you. And what do kids tend to do? They tend to blame themselves. As kids, we tend to blame ourselves. So from early on, we can learn to shame ourselves. It must be my fault. It's always my fault. 
or it really is my job to make mom happy. You know, whatever it might be. But it's amazing. Every once in a while when I pray with people through these lies, the reaction I get sometimes, it's really, I mean, you can just see the weight falling from people's faces. I remember I was praying with a woman one time, and I, in the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that I have to make my mom happy. And she just looked at me, I don't? She couldn't believe it. She could not believe it. I don't have to make my mom happy? And she was just like, <laughs> she couldn't believe it. I'm like, trust me, just say it. <laughs> and we'll pray, we'll break that in just a second, you know. But some of these things then, so they, they do enter into the subconscious. I told you my story about praying with Bob Schutz. When I just started to wail in his presence, that was a lot of non-conscious, subconscious stuff just coming out. And I couldn't even name it at the time. I didn't know what it was. I tried to like, explain it away as if it was some kind of a mystical experience and I was really weeping for my brothers who were in so much pain. You know, I mean, just give me a break, right? We do all these funny things. Anything to avoid our own stuff, right? So, in this process then, there's a lot of things happening. We're bringing these, these uh, lies to the light. We're bringing all of this to the light, really. In other words, we're, we're shedding the light on it, which is to say we're, we're bringing truth into these wounds. We're bringing love to a place where there was an absence of love. So little by little, more and more, we can identify the inner vows that we've made. We can renounce the lies. And then we can invite Jesus into the wound, into that memory. Inevitably, there's a memory or a series of memories attached to the wound. You don't always have to remember it uh, vividly. And sometimes God even protects people from uh, gory details, if there were gory details, because you don't really need to know the gory details. Um, but the pain of it does need to be uh, felt. There's a great line I always like to remind you. Know, you got to feel it in order to heal it. You have to feel it in order to heal it. Again, why would I say my left arm is broken if it's really my right one, <laughs> right? So I feel that pain in my right arm if I've broken it. So I said, okay, yeah, that's where it hurts. I'm really not sure what happened, but, but that's where it hurts. And, and God can work with that. It's a mysterious process sometimes, you know. You might hear something today that will make sense to you two years from now, five years from now. Like, oh, I remember when Father Jason said that? It made absolutely no sense to me. 
when he said it. But now, two, three years later, all of a sudden, because I've continued to pray with it and, and process and, and heal, and all of a sudden the light goes on. You're like, huh, now I know what he meant by that. Because you know, I'm five years into this, a good five years into it. You know, so I have a certain experience and understanding, and you might be sitting in your chair thinking, this is all pretty crazy. But again, this is what God wants for us. And the saints understood this. You know, here we are again in this Jesuit house. And I was reading, I don't know if anybody bothered to read the little plaque on the wall here. But we're in the uh, Manresa room, and it says, Manresa, a small town nine miles from Montserrat in Spain, is where Ignatius stayed for about a year. He lived for a short period of time at Santa Lucia Hospital at the Dominican Monastery in a cave and with local families. Here in Manresa, he suffered from severe depression and inner despair and was blessed with deep spiritual experiences. That's what happened when Ignatius went to Manresa. They call, you know, they call Ignatius of Loyola like the, the first modern psychologist, you know, because he was given a grace of, of self-knowledge. And he was getting in touch with his wounds. He was a very proud man. I don't know if you know his story, but he was, uh, he was a soldier. Wasn't very big, you know, kind of probably, he probably had a Napoleon complex. <laughs> and he, uh, he was hit, his leg was hit with a cannonball. And so um, when he was convalescing, his leg started to heal and it, it started to heal crooked. And he was so vain, he's like, break that thing again. I can't walk around with a crooked leg. <laughs> so they had him break his leg again. And, and, and then little by little, they, the only books they had to read in the house where he was staying were like Lives of the Saints and A Life of Christ. And his first experience of discernment was reflecting on the way he felt after reading the lives of the saints and the life of Christ versus how he felt after reading other stories of, uh, you know, knights and wars and things like that. He said, you know, I liked the knights and, and reading about the wars and conquering and victories and all that gallantry, but it would soon fade. It was fading. Whereas when I read the lives of the saints, especially Francis and, and Dominic, because uh, Ignatius is 1500s, and Dominic and Francis were, you know, 1200s. So he's like, my heart was moved, and there was a lasting peace, and there was a lasting sense of who I was called to be. So that was his first experience of spiritual discernment, reflecting on how he felt. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. 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 So he was a very extreme kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> Over the top. So the Lord had to work with him and, and, and shape him little by little. And yeah. 
So uh, as I tell people, this, this can be messy, you know, because it, it involves relationships, a relationship with the Lord, a relationship with yourself on a deeper level, having to examine other relationships. But ultimately, as I said, it's in relationship with the Lord and with other brothers and sisters in Christ that allow us to be healed and to start thriving. Christ, as we said, came that we may have life and have it abundantly. So he wants us to thrive. He wants us to thrive. Even in the midst of trials and tribulations, we can still thrive interiorly. We can still have joy. On that bottom left-hand corner, I list seven desires of the heart. And there are many more than just seven, but these seven certainly highlight, I think, the universal desires that we all have, no matter how old we are, no matter you know, what we do in life as a vocation, male, female. We all have these seven desires to be heard and understood, to be affirmed for what we do, to be blessed for who we are to be safe and provided for, to be touched in a healthy way, to be chosen and desired, to be included and to belong. So part of the healing process is having these desires reawakened. Because let's face it, as we go into survival mode, these desires get buried, they get stifled, they get ignored. Because as my dad used to say, I may be dumb, but I'm not, I'm not stupid. <laughs> right? So if I keep going to somebody with the hopes of being heard and understood, but I, I keep getting ignored or ridiculed, well, after a while, I'm just going to say, well, I'm not going to even desire that anymore. I'm not going to desire to be heard and understood because every time I, I look for that, I get met with rejection. And so I'm just going to stuff that. I'm just going to turn that off. But then that's a part of your heart that gets turned off. So God wants to reawaken these desires. They don't correspond, by the way. There's no direct correlation between the desires and the wounds. There could be, but not necessarily. So that comes from a book. Some of you have heard of the book uh, by Mark and Deborah Laser, L-A-A-S-E-R, The Seven Desires of Every Heart. A really good book that also goes into this, this process. They use the iceberg model. So the proverbial tip of the iceberg would be the bad fruit. You know? So that which we see above the water's surface, we now know, is only the tip of the iceberg. But most of the iceberg's mass is underneath the water's surface. We now know that, right? So it's the same idea, right? That we can see the tip of the iceberg, the behavior that we're not really happy about, but we now know that beneath the water's surface, there's all sorts of 
thoughts and desires and expectations, wounds that drive the behavior. So if you look at this other sheet now, the step-by-step -step process of praying for healing of identity. This comes from Bob Schutz. And so it really helps with discernment. It helps with self-knowledge and just examining your life. Again, I think sometimes an examination of conscience, uh, you know, we're just focused on what we did or didn't do. But we're not really examining what was driving that behavior. But here, Bob invites us to just ask the question, what is the disordered desire or troublesome emotion? So, as Bob likes to say, behind or underneath every disordered desire is a good desire, is a holy desire. You know, I have a desire to be heard and understood. That's a good, healthy, holy desire. But if you're in survival mode and you're just coping, you know, you might really suffer from a lot of envy and trying to be the center of attention all the time. You know, I think we all know people who love to be the center of attention, right? Well, that's a disordered desire to be the center of attention all the time, but there is a good desire underneath that that we have to help that person get in touch with, or we have to ask the Holy Spirit to help us get in touch with that good desire and to bring healing to the wound. What do you believe in your heart about yourself in that desire, emotion that's distressing or disordered? Well, I feel, you know, really abandoned. And I think that I'm all alone, that nobody cares about me, for example. So as you ask those questions in number one, you might look to the list of wounds to get in touch with something in particular and the corresponding lies to help you think through this. And then we can ask the Holy Spirit to show you the root of the problem and as Bob was saying today on the podcast that we listened to at breakfast, the Holy Spirit's not going to take you to a place that you're not ready to go to. Nor should you feel like you have to tackle, you know, the biggest problem or trauma from your life. That's not what this is about. But it's about little by little peeling, peeling off the layers that we have used to cover our hearts. So you start with the outer layer, you know, the most superficial, if you will, thing that, you know, comes to mind, and, and that's right there. 
and just receive, to listen and receive. The root may be one memory or a series of memories or just a feeling or just a word. Because you may not really be in touch, like I said, you may not really be in touch with the actual event that's causing the distress. It's okay. It'll come, eventually, it'll come. Identify, number three, step three, identify the painful experience and corresponding identity lie. And here's the, here's the part where we get healing. It's number four. Ask Jesus to reveal what he desires you to know in the memory. What does he want you to experience? Remember, underline that word know, and right next to it, you know, or below it there, you know, experience. What does Jesus want me to experience? And that's the Holy Spirit's job. They were joking about the Holy Spirit this morning in the podcast. But the Holy Spirit's job is to make the power and the presence and the love of God experienced. It's the Holy Spirit's job to make that present in the here and now. To manifest God's love, you could say. In that place where you didn't feel it or experience it in the place of woundedness. Because you've just been reflecting on that. The Holy Spirit brought some memory or some feeling or some word. And you say, okay, Jesus, well, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to hear? What do you want me to experience? Just wait. And it might be ever so gentle but with the Holy Spirit, you know, he is gentle, usually. And so it could come in the form of, a, of an image with your imagination, some revelation of truth in your mind. You hear in your conscience a word of truth, a phrase. It could be a release of pain, like, you know, I started wailing there with Bob Schutz. <laughs> it could be a release Or it could just be a, an intuition, a gentle knowing, or a sense of peace coming over you, a sense of confidence, a sense of worth and value. And if you're doing this with somebody else, well, you, even with yourself, you can just check to see the fruit in the memory, the original issue. Has something transformed? Has something changed in this memory? Not that you're going to forget it. You know, that notion of forgive and forget, that's never, I don't, I don't remember reading that in the gospel, <laughs> forgive and forget, right? So, I mean, we're human beings. We can't forget some things, right? God doesn't expect us to forget certain things. That's impossible. God never asks us to do things that are impossible. Humanly speaking, right? So, uh, 
I mean, God wants to. He can erase certain memories. <laughs> Not to say that can't happen, but he doesn't expect that of us, especially in, initially in this process. But how we feel about the memory can change. How we experience the memory can change. How we experience ourselves can change. How we experience perhaps, uh, you know, a person that maybe your spouse hurt you. You know, in the proverbial, ah, when he pushes my buttons, right? So when somebody you know pushes your buttons, your kids know how to push your buttons, right? What are your kids doing or what is your spouse doing or your sister or your neighbor? What, what are they doing when they, quote, push your buttons? Right? They're triggering you. They're, they're poking at this wound. <laughs> and then we react. So when you start to notice yourself not reacting anymore, right, That's a sign that there's been healing. And this process is not linear, as I've learned. You know, we'd like it to just be a straight line, right? Okay, I dealt with this, now I can move on and move on to the next thing, and then I can move on to the next thing. It doesn't really work that way. It's more cyclical or seasonal. Because again, we, um, we heal in different ways at different times in relationship with God, in relationship with ourselves, in relationship with others. So inevitably, as we get some healing here today around this issue, my capacity to receive God's love and to think better of myself grows. And then as I keep living and keep moving and, and keep praying and healing, I, I encounter something else that when I looked at it two years ago, uh, I looked at it differently because I didn't have the same capacity that I have today to heal even, even deeper. So I, I get more healing there in, in a place where maybe I thought it was done with, but the Lord says, well, nah, there was more to that. Okay. Yeah. And it's not to always keep looking back either, because right? you're not fishing for things, but you're just being aware. You don't really have to go fishing. Like I said, whenever you get squeezed and something other than Jesus comes out, okay, well, let's just be aware of that. And let's be curious. Let's ask these questions, right, whenever that happens. So it's not like you have to do it every single day, you know. That might be really hard for most people probably wouldn't be very healthy but retreats are a perfect time to ask these questions and you know every so often when you notice certain patterns or when you notice that your buttons have been pushed okay well then let, let's make note of that and let's let's pray into that at some point at some point lord let's let's pray into that And as it says there in step number six, if the person does not receive full healing, give thanks and seal the wound. So whatever was healed, we just want to cover that with God's love, his precious blood, and, 
ask God to guard, ask God to guard that and protect that and, and to help us keep growing and healing.